It's my privilege this morning to welcome to our pulpit Ben Homan. Ben has been a friend of mine from my very first year as a greenhorn in seminary. We worked together at Covenant. We worked together at Food for the Hungry. We shared a heart for the Lord. We shared a heart for His work. And we shared a heart of friendship. And I will forever be grateful of that friendship with Ben. And now Ben has come to become the president of Langham Partnership USA, following after the ministry of Dr. John Stott, who preached the word so faithfully in England for 60 years and has raised up leader after leader after leader all around the world. That's what the Langham Partnerships does. It equips leaders for the preaching of the word all around the world. And we have a direct connection with Langham here at Rivermont. Several of the faculty who work at the South Asia Bible Institute with Murley and Usha Menon in India have been trained and equipped through Langham Scholarships. They have current students who are enrolled at South Asia Bible Institute who were there via Langham. The Langham Institute has also produced a South Asia Bible commentary in part with the assistance of scholars who are at the school with Murley and Usha. We also have partnered with Langham through their ministry to the Myanmar Young Crusaders. It goes over and over again and again how the Lord has woven Rivermont into the life of Dr. John Stott and the ministry of Dr. Stott and the continued ministry of Langham Partnerships. I'm so grateful to welcome Ben into our pulpit today and I'm even more grateful to welcome my friend and my fellow servant of the Lord, Ben Homan, to be with us today. Ben, please come. Well, good morning, Rivermont. It is a a joy to be here. I have been having this congregation on my heart for the last number of years. I have prayed for you um, in the context of welcoming Clay. It was my privilege to uh, be contacted by your pulpit search committee so many years ago as they were looking at Clay. And uh, it was such a blessing to be able to say, What a great servant of the Lord uh, he is as he opens uh, the word. And Clay, um, your parole officer and I are so proud of you. (laughs) Everybody knows that's a joke, right? Uh, Clay uh, Clay and I have been friends for uh, 25 plus years. And... uh, served also in China uh, together, and uh, there are many clay stories that will be for after the service. Uh, I'm also here with uh, a colleague, uh, Jack Grenier, uh, is in the front row. Jack, you might want to just stand up or whatever, and if you see Jack later have questions about uh, Langham Partnership, uh, you can talk with Jack or myself. Uh, You can also ask him about... uh, his relationship with the Manning family, which has some significance for uh, next week, I believe. Uh, Jack played with Archie Manning uh, with the New Orleans Saints uh, so many years ago. I think Jack's church next week, but there will be a, a Denver side and uh, then a Carolina side. I'm not, I'm not certain. But it is a joy to be here with you. And uh, as we begin our time, I would invite you to... Uh, Use your Bible. I understand that there are pew Bibles or your own Bible or, if you're like Moses, on a tablet. Micah chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. 
And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord, will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that he, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse 3, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God. As for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast, the strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now, from now on, and forever. Now I'm going to actually search the pulpit for the timer. An important thing, and the timer is not uh, going. So, Clay, you'll give me uh, signals and we'll go along from there. So we're looking at a passage in Micah, and as I thought about how to introduce our time, I asked your pastor, could I say a particular word to help get your attention? Because that's what you're supposed to do when you begin a sermon or a public address. Most of us have had some kind of training in public speaking, and you're supposed to have an attention-getting introduction. So I, I used a particular word with your pastor And he said, I think that would get people's attention. Immigration. But I'm not a political candidate coming to speak at a local university. (laughs) This is a different type of immigration. What God is putting before us in Micah chapter 4 is a, a future immigration, but actually an immigration that has already begun. We've seen glimmers of it already. And it's an immigration that brings people from every nation to God's kingdom. How's that for immigration? Nations will come. And why is that important for us to understand this morning or as we live our lives 
here in 2016. Well, God brings the nations. God invites the nations to come because he declares with it his forgiveness, his extensiveness, and his prowess or his power. We need to understand that God is bringing the nations to communicate his forgiveness, his extensiveness, and his power. And we'll look at that in this passage. First of all, his declaration of forgiveness. Now this passage, we parachuted right into the middle of Micah. But if you've read the first three chapters of Micah, it starts out in an unfriendly way with God as a prosecutor saying that he has charges to lodge against his people. It's a very intimidating beginning to a book. If you move deeper into the the book, those charges are elaborated. There's a sense of accusation against the people of God, both both the religious rulers and the political rulers, for their lack of compassion, for their corruption. And God communicates his anger. If you look at chapter 3 and some of the details, they're quite gory. If we were to film it, it probably would be a film that we would hesitate to go to. The images are grotesque. God is trying to communicate his anger. And he finishes chapter 3 with the decimation, a view of the decimation of the temple and Zion, the mountain, being leveled. Therefore, because of you, the last verse of chapter 3, therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Ouch. Jerusalem, the mountain like that. And that's how we end chapter 3. And the prophet Micah pivots. And he talks about what God is going to do beyond that. We'll read again verse 1, but before you hear these words, understand that in this declaration, this stage setting of forgiveness, that God is communicating through the prophet Micah, a man that we actually don't know much about. But we do know where he's from. He makes a point. Almost the only biographical element of the book of Micah is his notation that he is from Moresheth. Why is Moresheth important? Not too far away from Jerusalem, a high city. When Israel was invaded in times past, Moresheth, because of its high and strategic location, often was overtaken. 
often was the center of attack for people, for armies as they entered to take over the Holy Land and to attack Jerusalem. The historians and Bible commentators believe that Micah, across his 52 years of preaching, probably was an eyewitness to horrific scenes of violence. In modern day terms, we would say that Micah suffered, or at least would have been vulnerable, to post-traumatic stress. He saw it with his own eyes. And so he bypasses almost all the biographical information and says, I'm from Morasheth, and his listeners would know that place as being a place of injustice in particular, and that Micah spoke with the position of, I saw it with my own eyes. And so he begins to unpack this injustice in God's anger. The mountains will melt, it says in Micah 1.4. But that's not our passage today, Micah 4.1. Begins, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. What a change from decimation to being lifted up. There is a sense of restoration as we begin chapter 4. A promise of restoration. We see that the temple is active. Verse 2, Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us about His ways that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The temple has been restored. God's word being taught has been restored. But what's different is that many nations, there's been a multiplication of the impact, the going forth of the word. The restoration continues as peace is described. The destruction of weapons is described as a future promise. There's also a sense of provision. The beautiful picture of individuals having shade under trees, under the vine and the fig tree. Provision, not only of food, but of shade. And then there's the promise for the marginalized, for the lame, those who have some form of disability, who don't have access to the things that other people would have access. It's a beautiful picture of restoration and an entirely different picture compared to the destruction. We need to know this. We look around us in our own context and we see difficult things eyewitnesses, personal experiences, elements of our own lives. And we need the promise that God in the future will bring His kingdom and He will restore. But there are glimpses even now of this. And one of the messages that I would 
communicate with you this morning is to have hope that the, the Lord is building His kingdom around the world and doing amazing things to raise up leaders. Seble Daniel is what I'll call a Langham scholar. Langham Partnership is pleased to identify future promising leaders in different parts of the developing world and to say that person and that person, if we give them a platform to speak, they can address the issues in society. And so we met Seble Daniel. Seble Daniel is a woman from Ethiopia. She's part of a denomination in Ethiopia with seven million people. She is their first woman PhD in theology. A denomination of seven million people, no women PhDs to open the word. What is she doing? She is addressing how women have been abused in society in Ethiopia. Physically, sexually. She is speaking to the issue like no other. She is bringing a sense of restoration into Ethiopian society and allowing the church to be a light on a hill. George Atito is from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC. If any of you are familiar that with the, the DR Congo, you would know that if you were to look at the whole of Africa and the different issues related to education or health, DR Congo would be a multiplier of those issues. The civil war that has persisted, we're talking about estimates of 7 million people over the last 15 years or so who have died from civil conflict in Congo. Georgia Tito, it's beautiful. The name of the university that he teaches at is Shalom University. Peace University. He's getting his PhD at a university in Africa and he's writing about peace and reconciliation. Who would you want to listen to if you were in Congo? Somebody from Congo and somebody who understands and knows from the scriptures what peace and reconciliation is all about. When we see these glimpses, my sense is to give you a hope for what God is doing in the world, but also to give a hope for what God can do in your lives and my life. Each of us needs a God who is committed to restoration. Amen? Amen. And so we see this passage as a sense of assurance that God is committed to bringing restoration and He will not be stopped. Because we see His extensiveness, His international and His global character. God knows no borders. Look at uh, verse... One, 
the very last line, and peoples will stream to it, referring to the mountain of the Lord. Verse 2, many nations will come and say. Verse 3, and he will judge between many people and render decisions for mighty distant nations. It's a picture of the promise in Genesis chapter 12 where there is this commitment on the part of God and in you, he's talking to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That promise being fulfilled. Clay, as he introduced me, talked about the founder of Langham Partnership, John Stott. If you're wondering about the word Langham, by the way, L-A-N-G-H-A-M, the way to get to the church in London that John Stott preached at is to say, take me to All Souls Church, Langham Place. It's named after the street in London where John Stott served for 60 years. John Stott wrote these words in a book called The Living God is a Missionary God. I pray that these words, all the families of the earth, Genesis 12:3, may be written on our hearts. It is this expression more than any other which reveals the living God of the Bible to be a missionary God. It is this expression, too, which condemns all our petty parochialism and narrow nationalism, our racial pride, whether white or black, our condescending paternalism, and arrogant imperialism. How dare we adopt a hostile or scornful or even indifferent attitude to any person of another color or culture if our God is the God of all the families of the earth? We need to become global Christians with a global vision for we have a global God. We need to become global Christians with a global vision, for we have a global God. There is this sense that the church, even now, is experiencing this in dramatic forms. The places in the world that are growing the most in terms of the church, the global south, Latin America, Africa, parts of Asia. The Holy Spirit is moving and growing. I'm reminded uh, of uh, a Langham scholar, an individual we helped to his PhD. His name is Antonio Barro. Antonio Barro graduated with his PhD in 1994, went back to Brazil, founded South American Theological Seminary. Forty students to begin with. He described to me their library. He said, our library when we began was one shelf. Books on one side, cleaning supplies on the other. They have 600 students now. They have thousands of alumni. Their alumni are serving in 15 nations. And if you've been to Brazil, the Brazilians have a multicultural gift, I'm convinced. They love to cross borders. They've they've been raised in a multicultural environment. And Antonio said to me, he says, 
we're sending missionaries all over the world. And Ben, we're going to come and evangelize the United States. Look out. Look out for the Brazilians. They will come. They're, they're motivated. And they're excited about the gospel and the transformation. Colombia. I was in Medellin a couple of years ago. The church is growing throughout Colombia. I talked with about 15, I would describe them as focus groups of pastors. So over 100 pastors. One of the questions I asked, I said, what is the gift? What is the gift that the Colombian church would give to the rest of the church in the world, the global church? And I heard the same thing over and over again. They said, Ben, the Colombian church would like to give the gift of a theology of suffering. They said 50 years plus of narco violence, narco terrorism. We've buried so many young people. We would bring a theology of suffering. In China, you would find a movement called Back to Jerusalem. The Chinese church wants to take the gospel back to Jerusalem. And then Clay mentioned to you the SABC. I apologize for the the acronym. The South Asia Bible Commentary. This took eight years. Ninety-some of our Christian brothers and sisters in South Asia. Pakistanis and Indians. Right, they work together on this. Sri Lankans, Nepalese, people from Bhutan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, South Asia. This was released in October of last year, just a few months ago. It's on Amazon, if you're curious. But this is an historic book. So historic that when we launched the book in Delhi, India, the vice president of the nation came to the event, gave a speech. He's a Muslim man. He came and he spoke and he said, this is from South Asia. And Christianity is a part of our society. Our Christian brothers and sisters were blown away. The point of this is to remind you that this God that we serve is a global God. He transcends culture. And if He can transcend culture, He can accomplish anything He would like. And so that takes us to our last point, that this passage in Micah declares... God's power. The prophet Micah is telling us that God is a God who is merciful and forgiving. That He is a God who is extensive, permeates everywhere, and He is powerful. And we learn this by looking at the passage, not only from the voice of the prophet. If you look at 
the voice of the prophet. You could see that in verse 1 where he, uh, the prophet says, Micah says that, that it will be the chief, what will be established is the chief of the mountains. In verse 2, he says, it will be God who teaches us. And in verse 3, it will be God. He will judge. So you have this presentation of God becoming preeminent, His mountain being the highest, and that He Himself will teach and judge. But then you also have God Himself asserting His power, especially at the end of this passage in verses 6 and 7. You see the phrases, I will gather, I will assemble, I will make. God's activity is amazing. But it's hidden actually in verse 1 as well. God's power. I mean, it's evident there in many respects, but there's one word that I had missed after reading this passage many, many times. At the very end of verse 1 is the word, here's the phrase, and the peoples will stream to it. What are they streaming to? They're streaming to a mountain. Well, what's odd about that? Folks, I think we can acknowledge, I'm no engineering a genius by any stretch, but water does not flow uphill unless there is a power that sends it up. This word stream is used only one other time in the Old Testament, talking about the waters that flowed through Babylon. What we're seeing here is a declaration of God's power that says, I am so powerful, I'm going to send the people's upstream like water streaming up the mountain. That is the picture of who God is. He gives us a visual depiction of how what He does is impossible unless He does it. It is His power. Why is this important? Folks, I don't know what you are up against in your personal lives, in your challenges, in your families. But we need to be reminded, we need to know that God brings water, brings peoples, streams them up the mountain against course. There will be no attempt to uh, invoke the philosopher Diana Ross and Ain't No Mountain High Enough. (laughs) But it's true. There is ain't no mountain high enough. God can ascend any hill, any mountain. How is that? We come back to the the first point, the forgiveness that we have, the grace that we have depicted in this passage. And a God who is so loving, 
that he would send his own son. Perfect. Loving of people from everywhere. And willing to give his life. And brothers and sisters, we are gathered here in Lynchburg, Virginia. But that lover of our souls who sent Christ to the cross out of love has gathered us as one of those peoples. But we're not alone. Today, Sunday, and other days throughout the week, there are Latin Americans and Africans and Asians that are gathering There's even a couple of Langham scholars in Palestine. A little town of Bethlehem, Bethlehem Bible College. Opposed by the Arabs on one side, opposed by the Israeli government on the other side, and and Jewish folks. There they are, shining the light of the Savior in that little town of Bethlehem. God is on the move. We need to know that in our personal lives. And we need to know that as we think about our own actions, as we engage with mission, as we engage with the globe, and it's exciting that God would give us this glimpse of what He is doing around the world. Because it will change what we decide and how we decide to engage with it. But we need to know it from a personal encouragement standpoint as well. I'll close with one story. Slavic Bible Commentary, or the South Asia Bible Commentary, we also have in the works a Slavic Bible Commentary for Eastern Europe and Russia. I was at a conference few weeks ago, somebody saw my Langham partnership badge, stopped me. He said, are you involved with the Slavic Bible commentary? I said, yes. He said, do you realize what you've done for us? I said, probably not. He said, we have in the same room working on this Bible commentary, and I found out this is one of the editors of the Bible commentary. We have Ukrainians and Russians at the same table. We could never have worked out this unity in Christ had it not been for this project. Folks, we never set out to bring unity between Ukraine and Russia. But God is powerful enough to work in so many elements of our lives. Pray with me now. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us. Thank you that you are a global God. Thank you that you love the peoples of the earth and that you call us to serve you. We praise you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.